Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Paperless Fairlist. I'm Justin. I'm Carrie. And we're here with a special episode. Uh, Carrie, my understanding uh, is that uh, you and uh, some of your family just had an opportunity to take a trip to Washington, D.C. And so we just thought we'd do a special episode uh, as a break in the routine of going through the Fairlist papers. Talk about some of our, um, because I've been to D.C. myself uh, a few times. Um, actually, I was uh, uh, born um, near there uh, and lived there until I was small, about six years old. And so, but mm-hmm. Had gone to D.C. a number of times uh, in, in the course of my life. And so I, I'm sure I'll have a few observations along the way, but I'm interested to see, because it's been probably a good 10 years since I've been to the Capitol, um, what your uh, your your favorite likes, dislikes, some of your impressions of things. Um, you're, you're running around the, the monuments to the founding. And uh, just thought I'd, you know, ask you sort of, you know, just walk us through the, the trip. Like, what'd you, guys, what'd you guys do? Oh, yeah. Thank you, Justin. Uh, yeah, it was really a, a great time with my, with my family. Uh, I've been to Washington before, but... Uh, you know, I, I really, in the scope of what we're doing here in the podcast and, uh, you know, uh, a lot of thoughts I've been having lately about, uh, you know, the American political process, I was just, I feel like a lot more contemplated this time, I okay. really uh, dwelling and uh, thinking a lot about uh, each place I visited. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, you get, I visit a lot of the monuments. Uh, I know that one of my favorite ones always is, uh, one of my favorite presidents is, if not my favorite, if not my complete favorite, is uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Okay. And, uh, you know, I visited that monument, and there is a lot of, uh, uh, just a lot of really uh, amazing quotes there about, you know, nothing, we, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, and, uh, you know, talking us through a very difficult time mm-hmm. um, uh, as a country. But uh, I think really one of the running themes that came across for me was the importance that was of of an educated citizenry and a citizenry that really cares about uh, public policy, its own history, and the Mm -hmm. direction of the country. And part of caring about that is also educating themselves as to issues that we're facing and educating themselves about American heritage and American history. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the places that came through to me was that... uh, uh, that I wasn't necessarily expecting was when uh, my family and I toured the Holocaust Museum, mm-hmm. and one of the things they were just that was discussed was how when Nazi Germany would invade and occupy a neighboring country, mm-hmm. that one of the explicit policies of Hitler, um, especially for some of the Slavic people such as Poland, um, uh, such as Poland and uh, the other Slavic countries. Was that they put in policies in place saying that, you know, none of the none of the people there were to get an education any higher than the fourth grade, and okay. with the express goal of making them easier to control is keeping them uneducated, and I think and I thought to myself, you know, that's interesting that uh, that you know one of those means of control is to keep people from thinking too much. Well, they always say knowledge is power. That's um, true. And and if you uh, have a well educated populace. You know, they're, it's harder harder to control them. And, yeah, you know. Yeah, and because so, it, and you know, again, as was covered in the Holocaust Museum, they spoke a lot about the fact that Hitler did not want even his own people to ask questions. The only policy there was, you know, the, to follow the leader. The leader knows what the country needs to do, and the leader has, you know, it, the leader basically is the country, and. You know, the virtue was defined exclu- under the Nazi regime as exclusively being uh, adherence to the will of, of the leader, of the Fuhrer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a dangerous uh, idea, I think. And it's definitely not one that the Founding Fathers ever would have intended 
uh, is to unquestionably follow uh, a particular leader. But uh, that was echoed later on for me when I went to uh, visit in Monticello, uh, Jefferson's home, mm-hmm. which I had not previously visited before. And our guide there highlighted uh, when we were in Jefferson's library, highlighted a popular saying of Jefferson's, which was that to, uh, and I might give the exact wording wrong, so I apologize, but he was <clears throat> basically the idea being to expect a nation to be uneducated and be free is to expect something that never has been and never will be. <laughs> you know, Jefferson was a yeah. big proponent of this idea that, you know, in a democracy, especially as opposed to a, a, a kingdom, yes. uh, in a democracy, if you really want to have a successful democracy, uh, then you really have to educate yourself and work a little bit harder to know what's a good idea and what's a bad idea because as citizens we bear a lot more responsibility than we would in you know an oligarchy or a monarchy where the responsibility is on the on the, king. the one man with the one vote and that vote is with the king, king. and he's yeah. that one man and the only vote that matters is his exactly uh, so where else where else um, where else around DC did you go well I hadn't seen the uh, the new uh, relatively new to me, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial. Okay. And I was really fascinated by that. I knew there was a controversy about it when it first came out. What, what was the controversy? Uh, well, if I recall correctly, uh, uh, there was, on the statue, one they around the memorial, they mm-hmm. have a lot of his uh, quotations from various uh, speeches he gave or mm-hmm. letters he wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, Martin Luther King is well known for giving a lot of great speeches and writing a lot of very inspiring letters yes but uh one of the quotes they wrote on the side of his monument was uh they just wrote i was a drum major uh, i believe that's what they wrote at the time and it was uh, uh well, you know what it's uh, i was a drum major for justice peace and righteousness well you're getting ahead of me oh i'm sorry okay that's <laughs> what it's from it was that it was a speech where he talked about how he was a drum major for mm-hmm. for for uh you know, peace, righteousness, etc. Yeah. You know, like a drum major, he wanted to be someone who was leading people to these better things. But the quote just said, I was a drum major. And so taking it out of context, it really seemed somewhat insulting. Okay. But that was the controversy. Okay. Uh, Did they go back and fix it, I think? Because I'm, I'm looking I, at it now and it's got... The they got rid of it, I believe. They got rid of oh. the particular quote. Um, oh, Okay. Um, um, but I'd only seen the uh, the statue itself, that or the mm-hmm. the the, the carving uh, the statue of Martin Luther King Jr. But uh, I thought some of the design elements around it were very interesting. Uh, in that there is a sort of an arc of a wall behind him, mm-hmm. sort of reminiscent of the Vietnam War Memorial, but in a gray, and it has quotes on it instead of the names. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they both lead up to these two pillars that sort of look like. Uh, I always think of the pillars of the Straits of Gibraltar, sort of the yeah. entrance to the Mediterranean Sea, or something. You know, it sort of looks like a giant gate, almost, or yeah. divided. Or, but they're very neatly cut into. It looks like a mountain that's just had a chunk, just Sliced not cleanly out of it. Yeah. And the the shape of the statue of Martin Luther King is the missing piece that's sort of okay. thirty or forty feet in front. And the message there is that Martin Luther King was sort of the 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 link or the bridge between American history in the past and the future. Well, I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. But uh, yeah, the, you know, some of the other new mores that more touched on what we're doing here is uh, the uh, 
the Constitution Gardens area um, mm -hmm. on the National Mall where there is a sort of an artificial island created in, the, in, a, in a small lake or large pond, however you want to look at it, that had the names, the signatures of each of the original signers of the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, it highlighted, and, you know, we might have discussed before how, you know, now we just take it as a given that, uh, you know, these were guys who, they just were there, they signed the Declaration of oh, Independence. Oh, yeah. And we just think <laughs> of it as like, you know, an un not a particularly noteworthy thing, it, but it really brings some of the fact they highlighted there that every one of those individuals who signed, if the Revolutionary War would have been lost by the colonies, they would have, every single one of them would have been executed. And absolutely. That's why John yeah. Hancock's large signature was a political statement to show that he wasn't afraid to put his name on the page. Yep. And and he, I think he also, I think he realized that. And I think he realized, like, if I write my name small or if I write it big, it's not going to affect the outcome. Yeah. We lose, I'm going to die. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, <laughs> so, he's going to have know, that integrity. So, so he's just going to say, I'm, I might as well write my name big. Yeah, know? exactly. Um, and I'm not going to hide behind a, a little scribble. Um, on, in the corner and the funny thing is is you know you think often at least uh, I do sometimes about how history really depends on who controls the pen at the time it's being written written right yeah. Um, yeah. and where we uh, and we and now I mean we would all take the position or at least most would that the founding fathers were, were great men and they you know did all these wonderful things had we lost you know they'd be the the band of uh you know, um, treasonists, you know, yeah. or, or modern yeah. parlance terrorists that yeah. attack the crown, you know? Yeah. Um, well, we also visited so, the yeah. U.S. Capitol building. Yeah. Uh, we uh, had an opportunity to, uh, there was a uh, staffer of my name, uh, Bennett, who gave us a tour. He okay. was a staffer of our congressman, Andy Barr, and uh, he gave us a great tour. It was really nice, really informative, uh, but it covered again how I'd forgotten, you know, you forget about the changing times and the changing uh how things then weren't necessarily the same as now and just such as what this is just a fairly pedestrian matter but Good. Yeah. how you know we were we got to look at we looked at the uh i for, always forget how the supreme court used to be in the capitol building okay um yeah and so we looked at that in the dark basement that uh that jay and the other justices wrote their opinions and i you know forgotten yeah. about how in the first you know i don't think i've ever been there you know? it's a it is in the basement of the Capitol. Mm -hmm. It is a relatively small room, and they have the lighting how it was then, which is sort of dim. And they highlighted again how I think it was in the first twenty years of this U.S. Supreme Court, they only heard like nine cases. It was pretty slow going. I mean, this is this is in the pre um, Marbury versus Madison days, mm -hmm. where nobody viewed the court as particularly important. Um, but then uh, we saw the old Senate chambers also. Where again the the giant wings of the Capitol with the op the very large chambers weren't what they used then. They were a lot smaller back then, uh -huh. um, and so the Senate room was was a lot smaller as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it, it it was really a great experience. But you know, I really uh, for me uh, a reoccurring theme for me kept being that uh, you know one the importance and uh, of education. And, and and you know serious uh, responsibility of the citizens in America to really maintain this vision and this this life's work of the founders mm -hmm. um, in what we do every day and uh, you know I like to think that we're you know what we 
are doing here is an extension of that and trying to really delve deeply into what the founders intended. Um, but also the amount of work and sacrifice that each of the founders themselves put into uh, the formation of our country and, you know, how part of respecting that sacrifice is mm-hmm. to ourselves, you know, dedic- you know, I think it's Lincoln, you know, to paraphrase Lincoln, to can take up the work that they have so nobly sacrificed themselves to do. I mean, mm-hmm. George Washington is definitely one of the best examples, you know, in talking about how, you know, we discussed how uh, here's an individual who basically spent his entire life in the service to his country. Yeah. And, you know, he there is very few years of his life in total where he's just enjoying himself hanging out at Mount Vernon mm-hmm. for the majority of his life. He is in one level of government service or the other mm-hmm. between, you know, being the leader of the Continental Army, being the U.S. president or, mm-hmm. you know, after leaving the presidency, being, again, the leader of the standing uh, standing army. So I remember when I was very small, one year, I think, um, I don't know, I must have been four or five, you mm-hmm. know, because uh, we were living in Maryland at the time and we moved away from there when I was six. So okay. pre, pre-six. And we, uh, my family, we went and we saw uh, Fourth of July fireworks on the National Mall. You know, oh, okay. And and saw um, and it was really a it was I've a never great show. Those. It was it was a great show, and I mean it was impressive. And you know they shot them off, and and you've got the Washington Monument there, uh, if my memory serves me right, and all the fireworks above it, uh, and you're sitting there watching and experiencing the, the fireworks on Fourth of July in D.C. is is uh, something new, unique. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it's always a great celebration wherever you're at in the country. Uh, it's an important celebration. Um, but that one particular sticks out in my mind, I think, given just for probably the immenseness of it uh, that I yeah, saw at a very early a age. It is a spectacle. But, you know, looking back now, I have probably ascribed a sense of uh, history to it as well. Um, you know, when I was also very young, um, we went around to the museums, um, went to the uh, Air and Space Museum, and I don't know if they still have it at the time, but at, you know, at the time they had a little display where they had a piece of the moon that you could go up to and touch. They still have that. They still uh, have it there. Kids yes. went and touched it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I and I thought that was really cool. And you know, one of the other favorite things of mine uh, when I was young, we even even at a very early age, I could feel the immenseness and the weight of it was to see the actual founding documents uh, in the National Archive. Yes, we visited uh, there as well, and it know. certainly does tend to. Chill down your spine, and and to see those things housed, and 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 um, to realize that this is you know history uh, sitting there in front of you. Yeah, um, is this is the actual document that was yeah. written by those giants of the, the age of the age? Uh, so I mean, I have my memories of when I was very small, just looking at this thing on the other side of the glass, going, "Okay." I was really surprised you know, how legible the actual but, constitution was. Like mm-hmm. you could still, I mean the. The Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, for whatever reason, probably age and sunlight, you really have a difficult time reading the ink there. It's very, very faded. But the Constitution is still, the ink is very much still dark enough that you can actually read it. Really? See, I mean, I was I was small when we did that. And so I knew that it was important, even at a very early age. And now looking back, I can appreciate the fact, like, wow, I saw those things and, you know, I had the chance yeah. to do it. Uh, I didn't have it view it through the lens of, like, if I had go to see it now with the understanding of doing this project with you and, and really analyzing the thought process that went into it and then to see it again. And I guess it just, what what were the, some of the thoughts maybe you were had going through your mind? Like, were, 
we've been doing this now for a number of months, and <laughs> at the rate we're going, we still got a long way to go. Yeah. We're going to be doing it for quite some time, but um, it'll keep us busy. It'll keep us busy, but you know, just even with what we have done and and analyzing the the arguments for the ratification of the Constitution, and then you're standing there seeing it. I mean, what what were you thinking? Well, you know, both from what we're doing and also, you know, related to what we're doing here, I've been, you know, really uh, reading and listening to a lot of uh, related materials on the drafting of the Constitution. Uh, and, you know, uh, what really is amazing to me is, you know, how important that the document of the Constitution ended up being to, you know, it's such a revered document in our country. You know, every, everything we do in America as a government, and you might even say society, is founded in this, these ideas that were memorialized on paper and how close that piece of paper was to not ever happening at all. You know, we've talked, mm-hmm. this whole thing we're doing here regarding the Federalist Papers is all about, it was such a close fight to get it ratified. Yeah. And it was on the knife's edge of whether they're going to do it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and they ended up being able to do it, no thanks to Rhode Island. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> Because they were the last ones. They okay. The last ones. All right. we, had to, we had to almost embargo them to get them to sign. Right. Um, but even, not even the, just the crusade to get, well, that's a bad term to use, even the, the struggle to get the, uh, the Constitution ratified. But when you review and you read about the Constitutional Convention itself, mm-hmm. there were so many times in the convention where you had a delegation or multiple delegations that would basically say our way or the highway. Mm-hmm. You know, you are going to put this in or we're out of here. Yeah. You know, from the very foundational issue of how representation is going to be done by state or by population or however, to issues with, you know, slaveholding states saying you're going to protect slavery or we're, at, we're done. We're going to have our own, you know, our own country. Over and over again, there were multiple points at which it just seemed like it wasn't going to work out. And, yeah. you know, the spirit like that of Franklin, and, you know, yeah. often had to come, you know, he, he'd often have to make statements like, you know, we need to come here in the spirit of compromise. Mm-hmm. But more specifically, you know, let, we need to doubt, all of us wise individuals have to doubt, us, have to have a little bit more doubt of our own perfection a little bit to make yeah. this work. And, you know, the original document was flawed. You know, we, you know, you had slavery protected in it. Yes. You know, it's been an evolving document. But there was also a lot of things in there that have really stood the test of the ages. So, and, and that's, for me, is always a bit of the mystery of the document in that it is both, in one sense, meant to be an evolving document uh, to fit the needs of future generations as they need it to be, but it also, it is meant to be resolute and ironclad in many ways, in, in the sense that it, it mm-hmm. sets the floor, the base, and we talked about this previously in, in prior episodes, mm-hmm. the, the base level of rights that are supposed to be guaranteed to all citizens. And, and, and so the, the evolution of it and the, under, the evolution of our understanding of it, it's, it's really shocking to, uh, you think, um, like the body of constitutional case law, yeah. right? Okay. Uh, that has been decided um, is just overwhelmingly voluminous. And it all stems from the interpretation and the application of this relatively, I mean, you know, relatively, you know, short document compared to 
you know, in a, in a infinite number of fact patterns. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And and brilliant men and women since the founding have sat as justices and mm-hmm. and interpreted and and breathed life into the words, um, and and always with such reverence uh, for it and for the institution of of the document. And so it's mm-hmm. both it's both meant to to evolve, but also meant to to be in many ways um, a, a, um, a guardian, yeah. foundational. You know, the document itself is is our contract, birthright. You know, yeah. in many ways, uh, inherited, passed down, generation and generation of U.S. citizens, and 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 can be acquired by by immigrants as well when they yeah. become naturalized citizens. And that's uh, it's that duality I think that is so fascinating about the Constitution. You know, when you think about mm-hmm. it, is that you know, and it's inspiring as well that right from the very inception, from the get go. It, it started out as being something where you couldn't just say other people did this and we don't have to be responsible for it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's perfect already. Right from the beginning, it had the people that had to take the next step and make it work because yeah. we're going to get to 84 where they talked about you don't need a bill of rights because mm-hmm. that's one of the first fights they had about the Constitution when they ratified it was whether there's going to be a bill of rights. You know, George Mason refused to sign because he said we got to have a bill of rights. And, um, you know, so right out of the gate, you've got to add stuff to the Constitution to really make it whole. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we continue to amend the Constitution. But we, more commonly than amending it, we continue to enhance oh. our understanding of it, like you say, in yeah. how our society interprets it through, through court cases, through our, the government, the actions of our government in passing mm-hmm. statutes, statutes. Um, through the executive orders and everything else oh, that well. fleshes out what the Constitution means. And I think that's been a key to how it has survived when, by contrast, you have documents in history of other political movements that have basically written it and said, this is wholly written now. This is what I yeah. said. You can never change it. A great example, and I want to make clear I'm not advocating this as a good document of organizing government, but the, the Communist Manifesto, for example, when it was written by Mark and Engels, one of the things in it was basically saying, now this is it. It never changes. This is, you know, that was a big thing of Marx and Engels was, we've written this. It's done. It's over with. you got to follow this exactly or you're not going to be doing real communism. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that's always hamstrung that particular political philosophy is that there's only one real way of doing it. You know, you know, yeah. There was a fight that, um, you know, uh, whereas in the contrast, you know, American democracy and the Constitution uh, is sort of a self-adjusting, self-repairing system. Even we've, we've gone through severe trials and we've you it know, is. sometimes it is. messed up or sometimes gone the wrong path. And so you've corrected um, but something else I found really interesting and in some of the, the stuff I've been reading about the writing of the Constitution recently is that, you know, I, I think even from the outset, a lot of the founders knew that was wrong, even if they were doing it. You know, Thomas Jefferson's always been an example. He's spoken often against slavery, but he never freed, sl- freed his slaves. Um, but similarly, I was shocked to really hear and learn that some of the individuals who fought hardest against protection of slavery in the Constitution were actual slaveholders themselves. I mean, uh, I believe it was George Mason was one of them. He owned a lot of slaves, mm-hmm. 
but he spoke out as being an evil system and it should go away, um, even though he himself didn't do it. And mm-hmm. it's hard to reconcile that. It really is. It's, you know, just like it's hard to reconcile with Thomas Jefferson, you know, how he owned slaves and he didn't free you know, free them even when he died. Um, you know, it's it can be troubling. You know, you have individuals who know what they're doing is wrong and they yeah. still do it. You know, by contrast, at least, and I'm not, I'm not saying to give him more credit than what he's due for this. One of the few founding fathers, one of the only founding fathers who actually did free his slaves upon his death, was George Washington. Yeah. When he died, he freed every single one of his slaves yeah. as well. I, you know, oh, what I was going to say was we were talking about the Bill of Rights uh, as contained in, in, and I think we'll we'll get there. But I, you know, what's magnificent about the Constitution, and that I've come to appreciate over time, is is how it has inspired so many other very similar documents by other countries formed after the United States. And they have used it as their foundational leaping off point. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about that a few episodes ago where the Founding Fathers and and, uh, Madison, I think, was referencing um, Montesquieu and his works. Yeah. And some of the, you know, thoughts and ideas in Montesquieu, Mm -hmm. which initially, you know, I had thought... We're just the brainchild of the founding fathers, and I've come yeah. to realize that no, this is an evolutionary of, yeah, of human exactly. thought, you know. And it came in some of I guess I didn't really realize to the degree to which you know they really pulled from from the thinkers prior before them. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see is how you know they've put it in you know put it in the form of the, what we know as the U.S. Constitution and how that has inspired uh, later documents. Um, but the Bill of Rights specifically was later. Really, the foundation, in a lot of ways, for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, mm-hmm. that was championed by Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, and maybe we'll get into that at some point. It's really yeah. a fascinating uh, story in and of itself, and uh, I'm not going to take up the time here to do it. I mean, that's but, an interesting point you raised about heritage, as far as uh, you know. Oftentimes, um, you know, Americans, Europeans will talk about you know, well, America is such a young country compared to Europe, you know. In Europe, a 200-year-old building is nothing. We have them all over the place. In America, yeah. there's very few things that are old. Mm-hmm. But you can flip that also. You were talking about founding documents and endurance of government. Is that America is, you know, the oldest surviving foundational republic that there is. Mm-hmm. You know, all these other democracies. You know, democracy is the way of the world now, generally among developed yeah. countries. But America started it. The United States started it. Yeah. You know, the French Revolution was derivative from the American one. Mm-hmm. You know, the, this was sort of the prototype test case. And so, as much as you might, t- when you're talking about buildings or, you know, landmarks, yeah, we're not, we don't have a Stonehenge here no. as far as, you know. But, but, but systems of government have flipped repeatedly throughout Europe. Yeah. And, and okay, and, and other parts of but the world. But we're an old government as and, far as republics are concerned. And have they, as they have have flipped more recently in the 1800s and early 1900s. Yeah. You know, they have modeled themselves after us. Yeah. Um, after the United States. So it's it's really interesting to see those those eyes, not those eyes, the ideas um, continue to evolve and be adopted. Yeah. Um, and that, and I think, gives an yeah. a real importance to exploring the intellectual heritage of American democracy. Of yeah. saying... What do we mean when we mean democracy? What do we mean when we mean republic? What do we mean when we say representative government? And why did why why did we don't even unexamined? Why did they, at least the champions of the Constitution, think that this document was the right way to do it? Yeah, and that's you know because it's gone on to inspire so many things. What was it about that? Which is one of the central questions for. 
for doing the podcast um, in and of itself. Yeah. So I guess um, circling back to any other really touchstones for you on your trip that uh, highlights of the trip that, that uh, come out that you can think of? Well, you know, I've talked a little bit about the importance of, you know, enlightened citizenry a little bit. I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, transitioning a little bit to what we've just been talking about, you know, uh, I do think there's another important aspect that Washington, D.C. really highlights now, which is that the ongoing responsibilities of securing the blessings of liberty, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I, I, I had a chance to visit, for example, the World War II Memorial mm-hmm. there that I've not seen before. I mean, I've been there a couple more other times, but it's a relatively new memorial. Very impressive. I would recommend anyone see it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and they talk about with that memorial and the planning of it and where it is, how it's between the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Monument. Mm-hmm. And that's an intentional placement of the to show that World War II and the sacrifices made by those soldiers and by the, you know, the generation living during that time more generally, you know, it's a continuing obligation responsibility that they fulfilled mm-hmm. of securing those blessings that Washington and Lincoln, you know, gave their lives for in different aspects, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's a, a really good point is America has, is a very complicated so, culture and society where, you know, it, ha- it has had to reaffirm its values in many different ways and you know well most of our focus in our podcast is talking about sort of the you know the wars of ideas yeah uh, and you know mere rhetorical disputes you know that are very important you know i you, you know we can't get, leave unexamined and you know not acknowledge the importance of you know all those war memorials in washington dc and the importance of you know, unless you have people who go out there yeah. and sacrifice themselves and put themselves on the line to preserve those values, then it's a lot like, you know, we, we were just talking in some of our, you know, as much as the country needs, you know, basic revenue and a mm-hmm. basic resources and things sustain, to survive. Yeah, to sustain and survive. sustained yeah. by the blood and sacrifice of the citizens. Well, we, you know, we, we did touch on that when we were talking about in episode um, 11, where uh, Hamilton was saying, look, you've you've got to have a Navy in order to be able to protect yourself because you can't be neutral and stay out of things if if another country thinks they can just run in and, and mm-hmm. take it over. So, I mean, even from the very beginning, even even the founding fathers would acknowledge like we, we need to be organized and you need yeah. to have, you need to have uh, at the time men, but certainly today men and women, um, mm-hmm. willing to, you know, go stand on a wall and stand a post yeah. and make sure everybody else is safe. And certainly we appreciate that. The one thing I would say is, you know, there's a few places in my life that I've been where I think no amount of reading about or, um, you know, looking at pictures of can ever do justice to, to it. And the only way to truly appreciate is to stand in front of yeah. the thing or the object. And uh, to me, those have been uh, the Grand Canyon, mm-hmm. um, uh, the Statue of David, um in in Italy. in Italy, yeah, yeah. Um, and and standing in front of the, the Constitution. Um, yeah, I, and, I definitely agree with you there. So, uh, if anybody uh, who's listening, and uh, I would say, if you have the ability to, at some point uh, in your lifetime, make a trip to the nation's capital, um, take in as much as you can. You'll never be able to get it all done. It's too. There's too many yeah, important things to see. Yeah. Three more days there. there's, there's too many important things to see. Um, but make sure you, you take a moment 
to go to uh, and and stand in front of the founding documents. Yeah, because that's really the heart. And there's a lot of other you know. things at the archives too. I didn't really think hard enough about that before I went there. Yeah, it, it is sort of like our it, you know, if the Smithsonian is our national closet, then uh, the archives. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's it's sort of like that box of letters you might have in your life that you've kept yeah. from friends and family. Uh, yeah, there's some really good ones there. So. Well, you know, I think I'll wrap it up for this kind of um, uh, side episode to the uh, our normal uh, Paperless Fairless podcast. Thanks for everybody for listening. We'll be back next time uh, with another episode that's on topic um, to the point of the podcast. I just and thought this would be a useful diversion. It's just a um, little, little, little something extra in case uh, anybody was interested. So uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next thanks time. Thanks a lot.